You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also is a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. It is always good to be back in the Digital Noise Recording Studios. So, well, you know, our bedrooms. <laughs> For Digital Noise, hey, that's John Golson over there joining me. Hello, John. Hello, Chris. How are you today, sir? I'm fine. I'm Just fine. Everything's fine. That's, a, fine. that's that fine. That's like the way someone says fine right before they fly into a killing spree. Oh, that was earlier this week. I'm okay now. Yeah, yeah, I'm you feel like you've called. better. Yeah, and I can show you my doctor's note that says that I I am allowed to return to the podcast. Oh, okay, uh, good. I, yeah. yeah, the lawyers um, did in fact ask for that, so mm-hmm. you're gonna want to scan that and send it over. Yes, I have that in in, in hand. No, I actually had a big. Uh, it's funny, I had a big crunch um, on a project, a work project, and we had to turn around and give a presentation to the CEO on Wednesday. So I was forced to ignore election news in a way because I couldn't, I literally couldn't look at it. I worked like a very, very long day on Tuesday and could only focus on the thing for Wednesday morning. Yeah. Uh, And then came out of that project on Wednesday and was able to see that, Oh, uh, okay, cool. Like everything is as chaotic as, uh, as our president promised, you know, he's a man of his word and he, (laughs) he, he promised a turbulent, chaotic election season, and he has delivered on his promises. I mean, created it, one might even say. Maybe. But, <laughs> by the way, I see your your t-shirt there. Is that for the comic book that you work on? My t-shirt? No, no, no. Oh, no. I saw the character at the top. I thought that was Halloween Man. Oh, no. it's uh, This is a shirt. This is one of my favorite Marvel shirts, and I got it at Walmart for like $6. And it's the cover of Dan's, one of the covers from Dan Slott's Run of the Thing. And it's the thing playing poker uh, with obscure Marvel superheroes, like like uh, Stingray is on the shirt. Um, <laughs> and then everybody is like kind of standing around watching uh, this poker game. Uh, and okay. the, thing, the thing is my favorite Marvel character, and I've had this shirt for uh, way too long, just like a, a, a geek does with his shirts. You know, you have them like <laughs> yeah. almost like, I think this thing is going on 15 years old at this point. But, yeah, know. my wife is like, I'm wearing certain shirts, and they've got holes in the shoulders and the armpits. She's like, you know, their shirts get all fucked up because you don't wash them properly. I was like, no, this shirt is all fucked up because I've had it for 25 years and yeah. worn the crap out of it. <laughs> yeah, for I don't know what is, I can't speak across gender lines, absolutely, but me and, I and most dudes I know will wear a shirt till it literally falls off our body. Mm-hmm. If we like that shirt. It's basically it with me. Uh, usually it's it's weight fluctuations that will cause me to get rid of a shirt. So yeah. I'll gain a little till it gets too tight and then get rid of it and then lose a little and go, oh, I wish I still had that shirt. Oh, I put that on the <laughs> hope hangers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the hope hangers. Oh, I have that yeah. drawer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was also going to say I love the thing, too, because of John Burns' classic run on it mm-hmm. in the 80s, which yeah. was like... One of those, and everyone's like, why are you doing a uh, giving this character from Fantastic Four that doesn't really seem like he'd work on his own, his own series? And it's one of the greatest, like, spinoff books, I think, of all time. Yeah, a lot of fun. I'm actually yeah. in halfway through rereading that whole run right now. Oh, nice. Well, maybe I should do that, too. Damn it. Now I feel like I'm not keeping up with the, jo- the Johnses. Oh, right. well. <laughs> well, let's talk about the movies that we came here to do, about the Blu-rays that have come out. And we're going to start officially on this 
5th of November that we're recording this, we're talking about V for Vendetta. You know, remember, remember the 5th of November? I can't believe I, I watched this today and I felt like such a such a dork. Why? <laughs> because it was the fifth of November, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm, I like, I wanted to. F- it made me feel like a poser. Like I was like, ah, yes, it's the fifth of November. Time for my holiday movie, V for Vendetta. It's this actually guy playing in- at theaters tonight. Is it really? Well, yeah, good. Yeah. It should it, be. It's playing in theaters tonight. I was. I looked up something. Oh, I looked up the release date, and it showed me showtimes. And there's at least three theaters in Austin that are playing it. Like, dude, I'm theater. leaving out. I'm leaving out milk and cookies for Santa Fox. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but who among us hasn't burned down some large public building? I know right. I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's because but you live way, in love Austin, this... the most dangerous city in America. Right? It's so dangerous here. We're like, the, the, all the cats will get you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and this is funny. You're like, I feel like such a geek right after you've done explaining your Marvel t-shirt. <laughs> I'm like that ship has sailed, my friend. No, no, no. This is cool. Oh, it's, I see. It's, it's 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 this is cool. But okay. you don't you don't watch you don't watch V for Vendetta on the fifth of November unless you own a Guy Fox mask. Actually, you own a Guy Fox mask. I do. In fact, I can't believe it's like <laughs> I don't know where. Oh wait, hold on. I can get it. <laughs> there you go. Yes, I think this, uh... But if you wear it on a webcam, that means you're automatically a member of Anonymous. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah. shoot. I'm, am I, is uh, StreamYard, the company we use, they're going to send a message to the, the bad guys here? But, yeah, I think I... I don't remember. I think I got the... I know where I got this. I first saw... I'm going to take it off. It's too hot. I first saw this movie at the one and only Buttonamathon I ever went to, which mm. was a birthday party for Harry Knowles... I was never really was close with Harry. I kind of knew him, but he was cl- very close with my roommate, uh, C. Robert Cargill. And he and his wife have been talk- trying to talk me into going to Buttonamathon forever. And I finally was like, it just like, it sounded horrible. It was like 24 hours straight of movies picked by someone else who famously tortures his crowd if they start trying to nap. Why would I want to do that? Finally, okay, fine. I'll do one. And it was... You know, intermixed between cool and completely uh, interminable. But the last film of the night was V for Vendetta, and they gave out the masks, and, and I really liked the movie, but I was also like, Jesus Christ, I can barely keep my eyes open. So I ended up going out to see it again, because this story actually means a lot to me. The Alan Moore graphic novel of this was an early buy for me as that person who was transitioning from... You know, as a kid buying comics to, oh, they make adult comics, like comics yeah. for grownups. And it was one of the first ones I got uh, at the time. It was newish. <laughs> and I fell so madly in love with it. That was the thing that made me fall in love with Alan Moore. I mean, I must I, I still have that copy and it is dog eared and faded and in not great shape because of how many times I've read it. So I was very much looking forward to this. This was also on the heels of The Matrix. And, you know, I mean, I was a huge Matrix fan, and Lana and Lily Wachowski were, wrote this adaptation of it. It was actually directed, although many people think it's a, that they directed it as well. It was actually uh, directed by James McTeague, who worked as an assistant director on the Matrix films, amongst other things, including Dark City and the, the Star Wars uh, prequels. But overall, walked into this really excited about this movie. Uh, had to see it again to make sure I was getting the right impression, which was that... I think the story of a guy played by Guy, uh, not Guy Pierce. What is his name? Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. I was, yeah, Guy Fox, but a guy who, in a dystopian future Britain, that where it has turned completely fascist, is wearing a Guy Fox mask and is going around murdering the members, high end members of government. It turns out it's not just to shut down the government and let people be free again or what have you. It's because it ties back to his own origin story as a person who was experimented on in their concentration camps. And although they're never entirely clear what the effect of why he was the only person who survived all these experimental drugs they were shooting into people that uh, he is getting revenge against all the people who worked there one at a time. And he ties, gets involved just kind of accidentally with Natalie Portman's character, Evie, who's an employee of the television network who rescues her very early in the film. That's the first time we see him 
from London secret police. And she bit by bit becomes more and more part of his life and into his philosophy. And this also stars Stephen Ray as the chief inspector of the new Scotland Yard. Stephen Fry as uh, Evie's boss. John Hurt is the ultimate leader of parliament, uh, the fascist leader. Uh, Tim Pickett Smith as Creedy, Rupert Graves as Stone, Roger Allen as Louis Prothero, the voice of London. Uh, a bunch. Of, it's got a big cast, uh, and strangely, uh, early role for Eddie Marsan, who became a much bigger actor late, just a little bit later. But here, he's kind of like a a bit player of the bad guys, if you will. You know, I remember coming out of this going, I think he got this on the whole right, but it's a little awkward when the movie transitions into Matrix mode for just because it looks cool because it's playing it straight for most of it. And then every once in a while there's an action scene where I'm like waiting for them to play spy break. Like there's a shot towards the end where it's all like, there's just throw motion, slowing, throwing knives and dodging bullets. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. I'm not saying it doesn't look cool. Sure. It looks cool, but it's just odd in the context of everything else. There was that. And there's the fact that, they cut out this whole thing from the book, which I thought was very profound, that the they had done away with all people of color. They had put them in concentration camps and jails where there just were no people of color. And there's this beautiful speech, sort of inner dialogue from the police inspector who slowly over the length of this thing is sort of realizing that he made a big mistake joining up with this party and that's not who he really is, about realizing that there's just no this beautiful wealth of people of different cultures and colors around anymore. And I really hate that that was excised from this movie. Yeah. I've, it's been a while since I've read the, um, the graphic novel. Graphic novel. And the, the thing that I remembered coming out of the movie was that I felt like both of them, I, I had read the, the graphic novel first before I saw the film. And I felt like both of them kind of the endings are, the ending of both leaves me dissatisfied. The ending of the graphic novel and the ending of the film both leave me kind of like, okay. Um, <laughs> but, but I did, f- I do feel like out of all the Alan Moore adaptations, short of the spirit of the HBO Watchmen series, which I think the spirit of the HBO Watchmen series, which is using superheroes to cast a critical lens on American politics even mm-hmm. though it doesn't borrow plot, the fact that it does what Watchmen does is very, very faithful to what Alan Moore was trying to do. Um, yeah. Short of that, uh, V for Vendetta is probably his most faith, the most faithful film, certainly more than LX, LXG or From yeah. Hell. Um, very, very close to uh, the source material. But you're right, there was stuff about this that was a little bit more superhero in my mind. Like mm-hmm. the very beginning when Natalie Portman is being attacked was a was a particularly like odd scene that felt almost like from a Batman movie where yeah someone punches V in his mask and hurt their hand like it goes dank and like, it hurts their hand and I was like that's right. such a Batman movie moment that's, that's <laughs> so is. kind of yeah. cliche and it was a little bit more like Batman than I had remembered and I, and I, that's great for trailers I mean the movie was a hit so. It, it paid off to make it look a little bit more comic booky. I think yeah. this honestly, like I, I kind of wish that someone would do this as a TV miniseries. I like, agree. like take the original graphic novel and bust it up into a TV miniseries. I think would be really, really great, yeah. but it wouldn't have to adhere to that, that superhero movie trope stuff that this movie adheres you to. You could expand on the characters, which a lot of which really mm-hmm. do need more expansion in here. Yeah. It would be more interesting. It does. I mean, it's over just over two hours, but it feels overstuffed at points. Like it's racing from one thing to the next. Yeah, it was, it was strange on us. This is only the second time that I watched it. Um, it was, it was strange as a second watch, especially because this particular week in American history, we're going through, uh, a very strange uh, transitional process. To say the um, least, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting to me as well how much um, of this was kind of Bush era, like very much about like, oh, state surveillance and that sort of thing, um, yep. which, was a, which was a bigger concern coming out of the Bush era. And it's, it's funny, it's not that it's not still relevant, but it actually felt a little soft to me 
in regards to what our current society looks like. I felt like V for Vendetta was like it had some sci-fi trappings um, to it. There's a little, it's a little fanciful, yeah. but yeah. the the horror of the situation felt soft to the horror of our of our current situation. And maybe that's just because of watching it this week. But it yeah. was, it was, there was part of me that was like, oh, that's quaint. It was a simpler time back when all we cared about was whether we were being monitored. Now we know we are, <laughs> and we've got other fish to fry. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely a, well, it already happened. So it's kind <laughs> of a, uh, a a artful superhero tale of the, uh, like, overthrowing of 1984 from mm-hmm. a very Britishy point of view. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it is. It's, it's poetic. It, no question is very poetic at points. And I think that... Um, Hugo Weaving does a terrific job as the voice and, you know, you never see his face, but I just, I just found out the one scene where he's supposed to be wearing a fake mask and it's actually Hugo Weaving. But yeah, I just found out today that apparently in some of the scenes, it's not even Hugo Weaving, it's James Purefoy. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Who shot the film for six weeks before he left the film. And since the, since the character is not, you don't see him, then, then some of the scenes are honestly not even Hugo Weaving. You could just dub it in, which is I what they did. Yeah. But this is on 4K, and they have indeed put together a pretty package for this. It is cold from a, the film's original camera negative. It's a much better presentation than the 2008 Blu-ray, which is included in this set as well. If you're like one of those people that was like me, it's like, well, I'll get a 4K player eventually, so I might as well go ahead and start buying things on 4K if they've got the Blu-ray, and this does. So not a bad way to start it. So it does, in fact, look just beautiful. And they even upped the audio quality significantly here uh, to Dolby True HD 7.1, which is, you know, if you have a system that can handle that, that's pretty badass. Now, keep in mind, you can still watch this on just regular TV speakers and it'll sound fine. But if you have a great system, this is capable of handling it. And there's also even some new special features, which is really kind of rare for 4K, the new 4K upgrades. Mostly they're like, well, and here's the Blu-ray with all the special features we did before. But this has not only all the stuff on the Blu-ray disc, but it's got a new James Mateague and Lana Wachowski in a conversation for 13 minutes, 18 seconds, talking, you know, recent thing about the history of this. Uh, Natalie Portman's audition tapes, about 14 minutes of this from her 2005 audition tape. And then V for Vendetta Unmasked, which is about 23 and a half minutes. And this was actually a 2006 TV short, but it was never released on domestic home video before now. So as far as as we could find anywhere and it covers you know it's 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 a behind the scenes documentary that covers briefly all different aspects of the production of the film so yeah i deeply recommend this i I think that this is a movie that i wanted to be better than it is but that's partially because i'm such a purist for the graphic novel it's one of those things that i hold so close to my heart i hold so personally that i wanted this to be kind of perfect and it's not it is imperfect but it is nonetheless deeply entertaining I i think All right, well, let's move on to the next thing, which is not deeply entertaining, but I'm going to give it huge points for the sheer audacity for the movie Broil. And boy, you know, there's some films you're like, I would love to have been a fly in the wall on the pitch meetings for films. And Broil is one of those I go, what in the fuck is going on here? I mean, I think it got made because of movies like Knives Out and Ready or Not, which is this whole horror-adjacent mysteries with families that are really, rich families that are really fucked up. You're like, okay. And it follows Chance, who is a student at a Catholic girls' school, who is a, a problem for everyone, played by Avery Conrad. She is uh, always up to something. And she gets exiled to her grandfather's huge mansion where the big annual family dinner is being planned, but she's not, I I get the, I I don't know if they said, but I think she's never been invited to it before. Uh, Her, her parents there, Annette Riley and Nels Lannerson as June and December. Everyone here is named after months of the year. Uh, They've hired a chef played by Jonathan Lipnicki. And I was like, wait a minute, Jonathan Lipnicki. Mm -hmm. You mean, the guy who was the little kid in what uh, 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 Stuart Little movies yeah. <laughs> and Jerry Jerry Maguire, the little vampire, 
The littlest vampire. The littlest vampire. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's all grown up now and looks all sullen. And he is this chef who's obviously somewhere on some sort of autism scale. It's unclear exactly what's going on, but he's a really good chef. And he's sort of a ca- hired slash forced into catering the affair. Although the family that get him say, oh, and here's the deal. We want you to kill our father. We know you know everything about rare stuff and you're going to take this rare Mush like a, a sprout that's super poisonous and put it on there. You're like, okay, this is a weird setup from the beginning. And it just gets weirder from there. And it gets into like, okay, so everyone is, I guess, yeah, some kind of God or vampire or something. It's, it's never really a hundred percent made clear. It's, you know, it's a family trying to off each other because everybody wants to be the one taking the power and it's disjointed and all over the fucking place. Uh, the strangest editing I mean, did that not, was that not the main thing for you that you're like, who edited this fucking thing? Cause it's just choppy and inconsistent. I, if I would not be surprised, I did not watch any of the special features. I was, when I was done with the movie, I was done with the movie. I would not be surprised to learn that this was a, uh, somebody's idea maybe for a TV series uh-huh. that, that somehow they were like, well, I'm not going to get a series out of it. So let me reduce this screenplay into 90 minutes. So you have this family, this sprawling family with like roots of decade, decades old, like generationally old evil, and the young girl doesn't know, and then she's kind of like discovering how evil her family is. And again, there's supernatural ties, but a lot of it is more just kind of talked about or talked around. It's very, it's very talky. So for like it, it's not, it's it's basically. A supernatural tinged soap opera, it like someone's aiming to make something that would be like a CW TV show or something. It's very yeah. odd. It's it never goes hard on the horror. It's never particularly clear about its world building. Um, it's just a it's just a mess, and it's odd because sometimes we get things where we know within the first ten or fifteen minutes what we're in for based on the quality of the acting or filmmaking itself, like mm. that the the cinematography or the sound or performances are off just enough where you, when you watch enough movies, it's like a wrong note that you go like, oh, okay, this is going to be a tough one. Or maybe not. Sometimes they turn out, sometimes a no budget DIY stuff turns out to be fun, but you can tell it pretty quick. This is one where I don't think you really, it takes a while before you're just like, okay, this is what what's happening here. Like, this is a mess, you know? It, yeah. it does not reveal its hand very early that you're in for a really rough time until you are. <laughs> and, and, and again, it's just a matter of like, there are, there are capital B bad movies. And then there's stuff like this where it's just, oh, you really, you swung that bat as hard as you could and just turned yourself around in a circle and fell down. Like there, you hit nothing and you expended all that energy to hit nothing. Yeah. Um, Everything you just said is absolutely true. And I found myself, though, this was one of those movies that qualifies as a a car accident I couldn't help but rubberneck at. And it is. It just makes so many wrong decisions and it makes them hugely. You're just unmissably that. And it's so pulpy and ridiculous that I was like. There was no way I was going to turn this off before it was over. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this thing? I'm sitting there watching. I think I called my wife in at one point. It's like, look, you got to watch this. Hold on. Just because it's that level of, of just absurdly bad that I kind of recommend it to people who look for movies like that. You know? I, I, could, I could maybe see that. I think I kept waiting for a bigger payoff and then that never really happened. So I, I tried my best to be really patient with it only to have it kind of not deliver anything to me at the end. So, um, yeah, that's a big old no for me. Who was the guy who was like the, the chef's boss. And I keep blanking on the, the actor's name, but he's one of those guys who like his whole career is appearing in B to D level movies. I mean, he's been in hundreds of them. I was like, it's that guy. And I don't know who it was. <laughs> oh gosh. I don't, I don't remember. You, right. You recognized him though, right? You were like, Oh yeah, I recognize. Oh, I recognized guy. a few faces in this. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. people that you you will recognize in it. For the That's... record, there are no bonus features. There's just a trailer. Okay. So, 
Yeah, you didn't actually miss anything because there was nothing. But let's move on to our next film, which I think is a decent little very indie film called The Deeper You Dig. Now, I got to see this. I want to say it was South By. It might have been Fantastic Fest. It's so easy to forget. But Arrow, yay Arrow, is pointing, putting this one out as a nice little Blu-ray set that has an excellent little bonus for an entire other film by the family that made this. And here's the thing. One of the most interesting things about this odd little ghost story is that it is a family that makes this and many other films together. John Adams is the primary director writer, but he writes it, but he creates these with and write co-writes and directs with his wife, Toby Poser and his daughter, Zelda Adams. And they play the three primary characters in this. And I think one of the things that kind of made me like this, because I thought it was good the first time, and I really liked it the second, partially because first I watched one of the bonus features, which was a neat little Q&A done like with written on tarot cards questions for the family as they sit on a couch together and read them off and are just laughing and hugging. And you're like, wow, these this family really digs the shit out of each other. And it kind of adds a whole different perspective to this very dark but amusing ghost story. But if you want to tell the story, the plot of this one, by yeah, all means, John I can. It. There's a there's a 14 year old girl who is uh, she has a, a good, comfortable relationship with her mom, and she's accidentally killed by this um, by this guy who's renovating a house, and he hides the body. And it's sort of a, yeah, it's a it is a ghost story. She ends up. Um, haunting both her mother and the person who killed her. She is trying to influence her killer into telling her mother, and she's trying to influence her mother to keep pressing the person who is the guy that killed her. Um, it's a little bit... Um, in regards to it being... It's it's horror by genre based on the fact that it does have ghosts in it, and it, there's if you're going to want to slap a label on it or put it on a shelf at your local blockbuster, horror probably works the best. Yeah. It is um, it is surreal at times. It is probably more of a drama, um, and you know I'm I'm watching it and I'm admiring it. I'm not I'm not all the way like. It doesn't have me, you know, under its spell, but I'm sort of fine with it. It's kind of cheap. And and again, it dips into sort of like very artsy uh, surrealness sometimes that it, uh, you know, that it kind of pushes up against its budget to sort of capture. But I thought the acting was pretty good and all around was like, this is a, this is kind of a for effort. Like this is a, this is a noble little, little exercise in, in independent horror and then I got to those closing credits, and it was like written and directed by the three people who starred in it, shot by the three people who started in it, edited by the three people who starred in it, like sound by the three people who starred in it. It was the three people. Like they made yeah. this whole movie. And that was the thing that to me, I was just like, okay, this just went way, way, way up in my mind. Because yeah, it's one it's, thing. It's a, it's a yeah. family project. <laughs> like, yeah, it literally what? is. <laughs> And it's the acting is better than that. Yeah. So I'm I'm like, really? Because you expect something like this, like, oh, it's a good lark. It's cute that they did as well as they did. And you're like, no, everybody's actually pretty good in this. Yeah. And then and then it's it's funny how we quantify talent like that, right? Because it's one thing to think like, oh, if this was an indie production with like a million and a half budget and it had directors and sound people and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of like eh, it's okay. But we we yeah. qualify talent differently, and suddenly it's like. Yeah, I definitely want to see a movie from these three again. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know what it is, but you, I think you, you have a bigger understanding of the the fingerprints of authorship on the film for one thing. Um, and I really, yeah, it, the estimation of it just grew in my mind, um, knowing that it came from such humble roots. Yeah, uh, I think it did manage to pull off some of the spooky, but it never wants to be spooky yeah. in a way that feels like any other type of ghost movie spooky. It's its own thing, because the ghost character, when she appears, usually she's just, although she is gradually degrading, they don't fall back on a lot of the cheap tricks that most ghost use, movies use. And most of the time, she seems like she's just a normal person standing there, even mm -hmm. with the decay, and is even flippant more than trying to be creepy with yeah. the guy. You also don't see ghost stories where it's the killer being haunted by a ghost. Usually it's usually just 
you know, whatever people are have to go to the library and look through microfiche in the beginning of the third right. <laughs> to figure out what's going on. And I kind of love the way that even the killer and the mom start to have a kind of relationship to each other on their own outside of her looking for him. But it's it's definitely a cat and mouse game, if you will. And the killer isn't a typical killer. He didn't mean to, he didn't mean to kill this girl. It was totally an accident, but he knows he thinks no one will ever believe him. And he chooses to see if he can just hide the body and get away with it. It's the middle of nowhere, snow covered mountain trails. He, you know, sure. The weirdest part is this little subplot where the mom is a psychic, right? Like, not like, mm. Oh, I'm, I'm psychic and going to like look for my X-Men. No, she is like runs a business as a psychic. You know, people come visit her for tarot readings and what have you. And she's been faking it for a really long time. She lost her faith and her daughter reappearing to her starts to regain her faith. And she, there's this thing that reminds me of something like the endless or something. Cause it's so abstract and cool where she makes a deal with a former student of hers who knows about a different type of magic to go all in and, like it sends her down this, it basically opens up her world way too wide to the other side where like, yes, you're going to know what happened, but you're also going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. The effects of having done that. And I thought that was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, well executed at a micro budget level. They showed you surreal otherworldly stuff in a way that was, I thought quite innovative. There's also, I, th- I think, a comfortable chemistry between the two leads and the scenes that they share together. The, and to find out that they're husband and wife, it was like, oh, well, duh. You know, <laughs> um, because you don't get a lot of that. You know, one of the things I remember um, from the Q&A for Zero Charisma back when, back when we were showing that movie... Um, Another good movie, indie movie that everyone should go see. <laughs> yeah, um, but I remember back when we were doing the Q&A, somebody had actually asked about the comfort levels of the acting. That, that oh, the acting seemed different because it seemed like y'all were all really friends. And it's like, well, Sam and I knew each other 10 years prior at Savannah College of Art and Design. So, and all our scenes were together. Like, everybody did know each other. And we had rehearsals, too. So, um, we had a lot of rehearsal time. And everybody was friendly. And that stuff conveys on screen. So... Yeah. You know, to see the to see them in their scenes together, these two people who I'd never seen in any movie before, giving really good performances, but beyond giving good performances, also having like a natural chemistry that made them seem that elevated the feeling of professionalism for the film itself. To discover that they were husband and wife, it was like, yeah, well, of course, because you if you you have a understanding that's different. It's why casts work together. It's why you know. Apatow's people work together and Adam Sandler movies always have all his people. Not that those are great, great acting in those or Scorsese, you know, uses the same actors over and over. It's you, you get comfortable with uh, what you know that that person's going to do on screen. And it definitely one of those, that relationship makes me want to seek out more by them. You know, if you're interested, there actually is another entire feature film on this, in this set called The Hatred. Now, it is not as good as this. It also is a, but it also is a supernatural film. It also is very interesting. Its main problem is just its pacing. It doesn't move very quickly, but it is a conf, uh, civil war set up with a, a, basically a ghost and a of a murdered guy and the daughter of a murdered family who are seeking revenge against uh, confederate soldiers one at a time out in the out in the snow once again these people don't travel for their movies <laughs> not to be confused with the hatred that we covered on this very show about no. nazi ghosts no, not the same thing at all. But there is a audio commentary by by the directors, Toby Poser and John Adams. There's, as I said, the At Home with the Adams Family, <laughs> which is the whole family having fun answering questions. And that's about 50 minutes long. There's It's in the Blood, which is 26 and a half minutes. It's a visual essay by Anton Battelle, which uh, talk about not just this film, but other films in the family's filmography uh, that and specifically about other horror films that feature families as focal characters in it. There's a 12 and a half minute special effects breakdown. There's a Fright Fest TV interview. There's uh, music videos, <laughs> Hellbender music videos, which I think they have a musical group they do too, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, this is 
It's kind of delightful, and you have to have a certain amount of patience if you're delving into the world of micro-budget indies, to be sure, because they don't have the slickness of a Hollywood production that maybe if you've never gone down this route, you're not used to at all. But I think this looks terrific, and it really works, and I would not be surprised at all to see after this one, which has gotten you know heaps more attention than anything else they've ever done, if suddenly their next movie was slightly more higher profile than this because somebody pumped some money into it. Yeah, somebody but. needs to somebody needs to come to them and and give them a chunk. Some one of these streaming services that does original content needs to be writing these guys a check. Now, another micro-budget indie that came out that delves into the world of horror is The World is Full of Secrets. This is a film directed by Graham Swan, which is a who is a first-time director. It's set in 1996 and it follows a group of teenage girls who are having a sleepover together, and we hear an elderly voice, female voice who, as a narrator off screen, who talk about, who keeps reminding you everything that happened here is true and our lives were changed forever from the horror of it all. Which, I'm like, really? But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's not them being, nobody is breaking and trying to kill them. They don't summon a demon. There's nothing like that. They literally just sit there and tell each other, they challenge each other to tell the worst stories they've ever heard, right? And it doesn't go and show you the stories. It just shows the people telling the stories. So it's slow. <laughs> and they're all about beautiful, innocent girls and who either committed murder or girls who are murdered or girls who are raped. And they're very unpleasant stories, you know, as they warn you they're going to be. Each one is like, no, no, it's totally true. So it's like the campfire ghost storytelling, except they're not ghost stories. They're just like, oh, this is horrible things that have happened to women like us. And you, you know, I see the, the point of this, certainly, but it damn sure isn't very interesting to watch. This is like anti-cinema. It's like a kind yeah. of people look sort of um, almost, I don't think they look directly into the camera. I think they're kind of like off but they, yeah, the, the camera just stays on their face as the person tells a story from beginning to end. And the stories run a good 15, 20 minutes. And this was like, Chris, <laughs> this was like school play, like church play acting where yeah. he wanted, the director wanted to get stuff in one take. Here's my deal. If this is your movie, if your movie is this and it's people giving lengthy monologues, like... You better make sure that your your readers, your storytellers are effing on point. Yeah. Because if your entire movie is this and you're literally like, I'm sorry, like no offense to these young women who are in this movie. I don't blame them. I blame the director who hired them and put them in a position where they carry the weight of being a a remarkable storyteller if they're not equipped to be a remarkable storyteller. I do yeah. not blame them. Single shot, close Single up, shot, they... Chris, 12 they minute monologues. They blow lines. <laughs> yeah. They, they repeatedly blow lines and backtrack because they'll skip, they'll, like, screw up a word and go back and, like, repeat or, like... It, I was I was watching it going, like, this is literally like hearing... Well, the first one especially, I was like, this is like hearing a church play. Like, like somebody's, like... Well, Sister Sarah's got some of the stories she wants to read to us tonight. Sarah, why don't you take the stage and go right. up there and being like, a long time ago, there was a... And I was just going like, what is this movie? Yeah, like, yeah I felt like the director this? saw the Dogma 95 agreement, went, didn't take it far enough. Nope. <laughs> it should be. You know, you're right. It didn't for you. You should do it and you should make movies without film. Uh, in your backyard that aren't recorded so no one else has to sit through them because this is just... I can't believe this came with a 12-page booklet. You know, I'm like, why? Who is going back and super-analyzing this film? It, it, if, this movie made I me mad because I just couldn't... I couldn't figure why if you had this idea and this was the movie that you wanted to make, I don't know why you would not refine the performances or get second takes. I'm assuming, I'm assuming even some of these botched ones are second takes, but like I, my mind is blown that you would allow your storytelling to be so sloppy in a movie that's 100% storytelling. Yeah. Just brutal. Well, 
there's not much more to say about this other than it does come with the audio commentary with the director, who, of course, is there trying to explain why he made all the decisions he did and doesn't do so. I can't imagine. I didn't rewatch this with a commentary, believe me, but I can't imagine that he would have said anything that would have swayed me. Uh, there's a deleted scene called The Magic Mirror. And like I said, the 12 page booklet, this whole thing is baffling. I don't know. You know I feel bad for anyone who watches this, who genuinely has put their heart and soul into the craft of filmmaking and can't get a film made because you're like, how did this guy get this piece of shit made? And I can't get my real film made. And it's always movies like this where the director is like a name searcher. So yeah. he'll probably end up listening to this. I always feel like it's like the smaller because people are, are they want to know that their films got watched. So when they, they, they do Google searches and they look and try to find. And it's just a matter of like, I, I, like film is art. And I know that this is almost deliberately anti-cinematic. But it, you you ruined your own attempt at storytelling. Like that's the that's the the issue for me. So if if you are listening, Mister The World Is Full of Secrets, man, um, uh, demand demand more of your actors for the sake of your own movie. Yeah, or demand more of yourself and go. You know what? Making the decision to do a single shot like this with no edits, with actors who are inexperienced actors with long monologues like this is, that's inexperience on your part. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, what are you doing? That, that, that just shows you're not a good director. Directors, you're supposed to direct things to make a good product, and what you ended up with was interminable, quite frankly. And, and I never use this word, but pretentious as fuck. Sorry. Well, and, and, you know, but there's there's all kinds of four and five star reviews out there on Letterboxd and he can enjoy those. So, yeah. Good luck with your your friends and family who gave it four and five stars. Uh, So we'll move on to something very much in a different category than that, which is the latest show from the streaming service DC Universe created by Jeff Johns which is based on the DC comic superhero Courtney Whitmore, which was the new person who took on the identity of Starman, but she became Stargirl, presented here by Breck Bassinger. And, you know, I've, to differing degrees, liked the other DC Universe shows. I think Doom Patrol is tremendously good. I think Titans is better than I expected it to be, but far from a must-watch. And Swamp Thing is frustrating because it goddamn it should have been great and it started so great and then it just wasn't really all that great mm. i know i think we discussed this together like the yeah. amount of disappointment that it god it has everything it needs to be great and why isn't it really that good star girl comes out bold and colorful and with you know some halfway decent stars to it even as well you've got luke wilson playing her dad who you know if you follow the uh, relatively obscure Justice Society of America comics, then you know him right off the bat. Pat Dugan's like, oh, he's Stripe. He was a side, a major sidekick to the original Starman. And you're like, okay, so the premise here is that, yes, he was, but that was a long time ago. All the original Justice Society died or disappeared. He is large, completely retired, but he has met this lady and they are... They hit it off and they've decided to get married and they she moved to his town where he lived, which is where she's originally from as well. And it's they have a a, he's got a son and she's got a daughter who look at each other suspiciously. But then one day she the daughter is looking around in the basement and she finds this big, long box and opens it up and there's Starman's magical staff. And it immediately is like, hey, I like you. Let's be friends. It doesn't talk, but, you know, it has never responded to it. Yeah, it has a personality, to be sure. But it has never responded to anyone before. So when Luke Wilson realizes that, holy shit, she's found the staff. The staff is staff, all staffed up and is letting her do stuff with it. He's shocked. He's like, I did not see that coming. And so there's this theory through this whole thing that she is set on because she doesn't her dad left a long time ago when she was little and she thinks her dad was Starman. She's like, well, it's gotta be genetic. Right. And he's like, there's no way your dad was Starman. I mean, I literally, I can, I can, I can tell you right now, I would have known about that. And it's kind of a, it's a mystery. The show is like, you know, insisting on, but as a watcher, you're like, okay, we get that this isn't going to last longer than one season before they wrap that up. And it's not the way she thinks it is. But of course it turns out the remainders of the, what is the, what's the bad guy organization called? 
they're not the Injustice Society. Are they the yeah, Injustice Society? Yeah, isn't it? Or yeah. the Justice Society of Evil or something? No, Injustice, the Injustice Society, Society of America. Yeah. They have, like, you know, there's no heroes to fight anymore, so they have just done what villains do. They in- integrate them themselves into positions of power around the town, and politically speaking, or socially speaking, and they all have children of their own who, of course, are around the same age as Stargirl and have various different types of relationship with her based on that. And when they realize, oh, someone's out there wearing the Stargirl outfit, the Starman outfit, but now it's a girl, and using the staff, shit, we got to stop this before they start to figure out what we're up to. And what are they up to? Ooh, those damn liberals using their evil powers for the Are we going to spoil the, the, final, the final two-parter? Do we want to get into I, it? No, I'm not going to be into specifics, except I think, I know we talked about this before, we're both deeply annoyed uh, at the way the show I, has this, this slipped-in, like, anti-liberal message and towards the end. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I paused it and said, what the hell? Like, my jaw was on the floor because here was this kind of like innocuous, very much in the flavor of the lighter episodes of Supergirl and the Flash. So yeah. if you like the, if you like the episodes of those that are more bubbly, this is kind of a, it's, it's, it's right in line with the, with those that particular flavor of DC. Um, and then it kind of comes down to like, how much affection do you have for the characters in the world? But it, it was, it was exactly what I pictured it was going to be up until the last couple episodes where when you find out the villains plot, I was like, I don't understand how this kind of slipped under the radar from a conversation standpoint. Chris and I rarely talk about uh, the things that we watch before we record. Um yeah. You know, when he gives me the the movies we're going to talk about, he might say, oh, this one's really good, or uh, I thought this was interesting. That's about as far as it goes. And then usually when I get done watching it, we're talking about these for the very first time the minute we hit record. This particular thing, I had to mention to him, and be like, dude, what the hell was up with the ending of Stargirl? Yeah. It's so staunchly, weirdly, uh, like, right-wing, conservative versus liberal agenda that I could not believe my eyes or ears. Um, but hey, that's a surprise. That's Stargirl. So if, uh, if, you know, if, if you're a listener of Digital Noise and you your tastes are very, very right-wing and you wish some of us libs would shut the hell up about movies, hey, have we got a TV series for you? I don't know if there's any of those people left. I feel like I've run most of them, them all off. off. I think um, I did. I played the, I don't, if you're like this, I don't want you as my fan card oh, a long oh. time ago. And so now here I am. So well, three cats freezing to death in the height of the winter in Austin, Texas. No, but like, I, I mean, the thing though is that like nothing else about the show feels conservative. It's like, all right. So like all the other good guys are dead and, <laughs> the guy, like the dad, Luke uh, Wilson, brings uh, the main character, Brick Passenger, Courtney Whitmore, into the former Justice Society of America headquarters. Look at all this stuff. Here's all their magic shit. Don't touch it. Here's the keys. And you're like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> like, that's not going to go anywhere. And so she immediately <clears throat> grabs it all and gives it to her high school friends to become like these new versions of characters Wildcat and Dr. Midnight and Our Man. And it's everybody is of various different cultures and 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 races, and it feels everything about this feels like it's super woke, and it's apparently not. It's 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 anti woke. <laughs> yeah, I, I also yeah. you know this is a, just a nerdy nitpick. I have I have like a weird uh, twitch when Justice Society is supposed to have uh, existed about fifteen years ago versus like. World War II era. Yeah. And that's strange to me. Those characters feel very specific to a time and place um, yeah. in American history that it, it, you end up making them seem really cheesy to kind of say, Oh, 15 years ago, there was a character named Stripesy. There was a superhero named Stripesy. Yeah, and that, nobody went, 
That's dumb. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it makes a lot more sense if it's like, oh, in 1941, there was a character named Stripesy. Okay, I'm comfortable with that. I can deal with that. You know, there I mean, was a character named Our Man. It's like, okay. They, they do deal with the fact this has been going on, that these characters should be older. Because remember, they talk about at some point, why haven't they aged? Oh, like, yeah. They've yeah, been yeah. doing this for so long, and it's barely touched on. So the, I, the impression I went away with, they have been doing this since World War II. Uh, and the question is how, and they, like I said, touch on a little bit. We do get to see some of the former members, which the show promises to see more of uh, in the next season. Joel McHale from Community playing the original Starman, uh, Lou Ferrigno Jr., who I've actually been kind of impressed with when I've seen him in stuff playing Our Man. Uh, Those are the main two I would expect to see again. Um, Henry Thomas appears as Dr. Midnight, which is kind of cool and i was actually really impressed and happy for amy smart who desperately needed a break right Mm -hmm. yeah i've always liked amy smart and she needed a break and this was a huge break for her like playing the mom here and i I was happy to see her play playing such a positive good role but you know i I think this is a really fun show with one hell of a big disappointment in the end if you come from the liberal end of the spectrum uh the the big stripes robot looks cool yeah solomon grundy looks okay I just feel like yeah, I should throw that out there, but um, I'm not a fan There's of the Hulk Solomon Grundy. I like a zombie Solomon Grundy. I, I tend to agree with you, and also the CG is very wonky in this show at points. Um, there's like the whole big ending that you can just see the seams constantly. The Solomon Grundy stuff doesn't look fantastic. I mean, I felt like they didn't just didn't spend as much on this as they did on their other shows, and you can tell. I mean, it would have been, they did that great practical swamp thing. Why aren't you doing a practical Solomon Grundy using that same? Yeah, I don't get it. But there's no bonus features here. Once again, it baffles me when people put out in this streaming age a Blu-ray set for a streaming show that costs as much more than like a couple a couple months of getting the streaming service would be, but with no bonus features. So why would you get that? I just don't understand the mentality there at all. There's no reason to buy this at all, unless you're one of those people like, I don't care about anything else on this network, but I know I'm going to watch this season like five times. Well, I think they know that they have the collectors. So the person who has HBO Max or whatever that has, they can access these episodes at any time but they need that copy on the shelf. You know, they need it with, you know, they may be able to access all episodes of the flash 24 seven, but they still need all the seasons sitting there on the shelf, just like collecting comics. I I, I I know that there's an audience that does that. I don't know what that's like at all. (laughs) (laughs) I could literally build another house out of the Blu-rays that I own. It's ridiculous. It's weird. It came down to it. I've found myself wanting to own glow on Blu-ray and I'm like, why? I've had to stop myself and be like, I don't need to own Glow on Blu-ray. Glow will be available anytime I want to go to Netflix and watch Glow. You know, I don't need physical copies of Glow just because I really liked the show. I have to talk myself out of it. And Netflix does that too, where all this, whenever, on those rare occasions they choose to put out a season of a show, there is, with all but just very few exceptions, there's never any bonus features. I think The Haunting of Hill House is one of the few exceptions where there was a few bonus features on there. But generally, it's like, this is it. That's the show. Here's a digital copy. Like, that's the 35 bucks. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our last movie today, speaking of digital effects, is 300, which is now being released on 4K. I'm honestly surprised it took them this long because this is one of these films uh, based. Uh, this is the 2007 film, not the 2014 sequel, 300 Rise of an Empire. But this film uh, uh, that's based on the comic book by Frank Miller and his then wife, Lynn Varley. It was a big early shot across the bow for Zack Snyder's career. I mean, he had done, I think Dawn of the Dead was the one that, the remake of that, then people go, wait, who is this fucking guy? I can't believe he made this such a good movie. And 300 was the one that made everyone go, wait, who is this fucking guy? And I don't think it's because it's a particularly good movie per se, but it sure is a visually arresting movie. Mm -hmm. And it was also a huge start for the career, kickoff for the career of Gerard Butler, who plays King Leonidas here, who famously led the 300 Spartans into battle with the Persian god King Xerxes, played by Rodrigo Santoro, unrecognizably, and his army of over 300,000 soldiers, which is 
presumably actually based on history. This is one of those things. There's a lot of myth and exaggeration and history all sort of crammed together in writings from this time. So no one really knows, but the presumption is something like this happened. Uh, his wife is played by Lena Headley, a uh, King Leonidas's wife, Queen Gorgo, who there's a big subplot with her trying to get Sparta to rally for her husband. Basically, he went out there to fight the Persians and was not really given official sanction to do it. So he just kind of got his most loyal man, which was 300. And it is a very sepia toned bloodbath of a film. It is just gory as all get out. It features a lot of early career, you know, big notable works by people as already mentioned, but also David Wenham, Dominic West, Stephen McCaddy, a very young Michael Fassbender. I totally forgot he was in this movie. And it, there's no question that I it's pretty in its extremely bloody way to watch and experimental and it looks like a comic book come to life. But man, is this the biggest... If I think macho posturing, this is the movie I think of. Yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about this post-Bush, you know, V for Vendetta being like a post-Bush comic book movie. In a lot of ways, I think 300 is also a big post-Bush era comic book movie. I mean, you are talking about these scrappy fighters going up against literally the Persians. Like, yeah. we're going to take the battle to the Middle East and we're going to kick them down a well. You know, and, and it resonating especially with um, people who politically <laughs> who, the, who politically saw it as, as the metaphor is far more literal. Um and it feels yeah. very, it felt very Bush era to me, uh, strangely, even though the story is, is ancient and the comic book is from the 90s, so it's pre-Bush, there was something specific about the timing of the film that reminded me of this particular time in in American history um, yeah. of when the film was released. Not, yeah, right. I was going to say. Like... Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very Bush era action movie to, you know, kick the Middle Eastern down the well. Um, I do feel like, like if, you saw song. When, <laughs> right, if you saw this when you were younger and you were just like, wow, blown mm -hmm. away by it, which couldn't blame you. I saw this in the theater. It was like, wow, this is a visual marvel. Yeah. Watch it as an adult and you'll still go. Yeah, it definitely looks cool. Um, but wow, is this bad writing? Holy shit. Is this bad writing at points like just embarrassing conservative claptrap. And even if you take the politics out of it, it's just embarrassing. It's like, did they got the, all the actors were forced to spray, wear Axe body spray and drink a case of monster before every day on set. It just feels like every, that the movie, every scene is constructed to be shown in one and a half minute clips before the big football game, any, <laughs> any given scene, just extract a minute and a half of any given scene and play it before your big game. And you're going to win. That's what the movie is like designed to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, tech, the tech keeps changing. Now we, now we have these, uh, like Mandalorian where we're finally getting these, uh, the, I, I know Mandalorian's not green screen, but I'm going to call it green screen tech because it's an evolution of the green screen, what they're using mm -hmm. on Mandalorian to create actual environments on gigantic screens around them is an evolution of the green screen. Yeah. So here you have this movie that is again, an evolutionary jump in the, in the process of filming a bunch of actors in a green corner that really led to a, a huge influx of that happening, you know, cause sky captain in the world of tomorrow was just a few years before this sky captain now looks fugly. Like, yeah. like why well, I actually saw clips of sky captain last night on Pluto TV and was like, sky captain kind of looks shabby. Like it does. <laughs> it looks like it was filmed in a corner. Like <laughs> they, they can't move the camera anywhere. They can't move the camera anywhere. So everything is like digitally painted into a box with the actor standing in the middle of the frame. Mm -hmm. Um, 300 of course is beyond that. It is more epic in scope. Um, but there is that still that kind of artificial quality. I think that one of the yeah. smart things about adapting this is borrowing a page from Robert Rodriguez's Sin City and going well, visually, we want to try to make this look like the panels. So you can get away with that kind of fakiness a little bit better because you're not, you, you're, you're trying to simulate almost like a dream version of the Spartan world, not necessarily something that's representative of real life. When it comes to the 4K transfer, I, I say all that to say this too. When it comes to the 4K transfer of the film, I think because the film itself is so digital, 
um, with with them shooting it in green screen, and again, so many digital effects. You know, there's a lot of digital blood in it as well. Um, I think because the film was so digital, they put a lot of artificial grain to make yeah. it look like it's real, quote unquote, real film. Um, and in the 4K transfer, I expected something really sweet and glossy and uh, like a, a close to like a purely digital visual dazzling experience. Mm-hmm. It is a very good 4K transfer. The blacks are black, the reds are reds, the golds are golds, like it's vibrant. But I would let listeners know that it's probably got more uh, film noise on it because it was, I have to imagine that that film noise was added in post to make it look less digital. Um, And it was a a grainier 4K than I expected because I know that uh, that 4K was put, I mean that the the film grain was pushed on uh, for an intentional artistic aesthetic to it so and it's not a massive upgrade from the blu-ray a blu-ray yeah. actually looked pretty terrific when they put it out um this beats it but i don't think this the i don't think the blu-ray was like substandard at all mm. and i don't think this upgrades it to a degree where it becomes a must own neither are there any new bonus features here at all there is a new dolby atmos mix into this which up uh upgrades to lossless true hd 7.1 if you don't have dolby atmos uh but you know so if you're a sound guy if you're like whoa i've got you know that but they don't they actually cut out the original 5.1 mix so if you have that as a speaker setup you're just going to be playing it in stereo which is a weird decision that's strange i didn't know that that's really weird yeah, I thought so too because it's a very narrow spectrum of people who went from five one to seven one. So, yeah. I don't know, but I, I, I've always found three hundred is like pretty background noise. It's not a movie I can take seriously. It certainly was. It was a massive success in theaters and became memed and talked about and parodied and even even a decade after its release people were still going this is whatever and kicking people into Mm -hmm. something because everyone knows that reference everybody saw this movie yeah or at least the endless trailers for it but it's dumb as just a bag of rocks man it's just and it's a shame that snyder seemed to base everything he did after this on the success of this. Like he went, Oh, people, that's what you people like. Okay. I'll make everything like that. You know, not as extreme with the pure digitization, but certainly with the types of storytelling that he's done, he went for that hyper macho. I'm going to be the digital Michael Bay, you know? And I think that was a, that was a poor decision for a director who clearly has a lot of talent. And I feel like kind of wastes it on not being able to tell a story that everybody wants to see. And 300 was the first big example of that. It's a shame because I still think his Dawn of the Dead is terrific. And I, like I even like his animated film, the, the was it the Owls of something? I forget the name of it, but it was Gahool. really good. The Owls yeah. of Gahool. Owls, you knew. See, you're like, I haven't I love seen that it. movie. Uh, I've never seen it. Uh, you should see it. It's pretty good. I, I really liked it. It's like the owl like sheds off its feathers and it's like, and the whole screen, screen stretches. No, it's not like that. Owl with massive biceps. <laughs> yeah, this has got to be the most homoerotic action movie ever made, right? I mean, I, well, I was talking to Wendy about the fact that in the comic they're they're butt naked, like they're fighting the way Spartans, you know, supposedly fought in in the real world, which is they didn't wear armor; they had shields, and uh, you know that was about it. Their shields and spears, and otherwise, you know, their their willies were hanging out. So you know. The, the movie still has an opportunity to do a director's cut where they just digitally <laughs> remove everybody's clothing and give everybody f- floppy ding-dongs when they're going into battle. So, You know, the one thing that people always that remember in criticism of this is, and I remember seeing it the first time going, what are you talking about? Where they're like, oh, fucking Greeks having sex with each other. There's like a homophobic moment in this movie. And I'm like, the Spartans fucked the shit out of each other. That was a big part of the culture was them having sex with each other. Don't even pretend yeah. like that wasn't a thing. Jesus Christ. Oh, well. Well, you're right. We should see the straight up, uh, uh, you know, Velvet 300 version mm-hmm. of this. I'm all for that. I'm waiting. Well, let's wrap this up. Uh, this has been Digital Noise. I thank you, John Golson, as always, for joining me. I know that you 
I mentioned earlier your comic book, and I believe that y'all just had a big anniversary, right? We did. Halloween Man 20th anniversary special is on Comixology. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there was a big sale where uh, on Comixology, I think most of the content was like 50 cents. Um, this $5 special was like two fifty, so everything was a half off or lower. I don't know if that special's still going on, but Halloween Man Anniversary Special is on Comixology. Um, it's a great jumping on point for new readers because it celebrates the the twenty year the history of this the super indie character. If you like comic books, superheroes, and monsters, it kind of puts them all in a blender together, um, and you get his origin in there. and And it's written in such a way where you feel like you're introduced to everybody. So it's it's a great jump on. Uh, and I've got like five pages in it, which is the most significant printed comic work I've done so far and uh yeah and was it's funny I was originally supposed to just have a pinup and an artist backed out and he had a slot and I said well, what happens in those pages because I hate drawing backgrounds Chris I hate it <laughs> and I was like what happens in the I like drawing faces that's about it you can tell in my doodles that's about all I draw are human heads and then that's it um he, I was like well Should what else is those boardwalk caricature guys yeah if only <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's the dream, baby. Yeah. Uh, so I said, let me see the script. And I saw the script and it's like, oh, it takes place in Fredericksburg and it all takes place around a fountain. And I knew drawing the three dimensional dish shape of a fountain with water cascading over the side. I was like, oh my God, can I do this? And, uh, so I laid it all out real rough and I was like, all right, I'm doing it. So I did it. And, and it ended up being like a, I don't want to talk too much about it. It ended up being like kind of a little bit of an artistic breakthrough for me because this, for this project in particular, I felt like it was the first time that my, a lot of times I struggle to like really, really, really do a good job and it loses the energy of when I'm just doodling for myself or drawing for pleasure. There's a, there's a looseness and an energy that comes across in my little cartoons and scribbles and little faces I share, little things I do for myself that was not coming across in my professional work. My professional work, because I was trying so hard, had a stiffness and uh, uh, an awkwardness that that I couldn't shake because I was really committed to making it look as good as I could. Mm -hmm. Something happened with this project where the, the breakthrough finally happened. And I felt like, yes, I'm doing professional work, and it has the looseness and comfort of and the energy of my uh, doodles. I still got a long way to go. Like I'm still improving as an artist, but it was like I've climbed a step. Like I'm off of step one now. I'm on to step two, and and I That's really awesome. felt that in this project. So I, I I talked a lot about it. But so thank you for listening. But um, but yeah. No, I mean I I was curious myself. I yeah. knew you worked on Halloween Man. I didn't know much about it, and now we know. And you know you now can you pick know. it up at Comicsology for like two fifty, mm -hmm. so, and you should do that. And I think there's also, print there's print copies in Austin. If you're an Austin listener, there's print print copies at Hops and Heroes. Um, okay, but but yeah, digital at, on Comicsology. So also shout out to our friends at Agronautics.com. They made this cool little. H.P. Lovecraft bobblehead statue. They do like alternative bobbleheads that are actually you can see like really well crafted bobblehead. Um, I, he somebody pointed out it looks like Mark Zuckerberg, and it never occurred to me how much H.P. Lovecraft actually does look like Mark Zuckerberg. I was like, holy shit, he does yeah, that oval face. Yeah, but they've got a ton of stuff on there. My favorite one is they've got the misfit skull guy as a bobblehead. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. I want that. But you know, I got the Gibby Haynes one and a couple others. They're, they're really cool. And Christmas is coming up and they make a great gift for your more alternative punk rock friends out there or people who like horror. That's a, that's a cool thing to get for them. Agronautics.com. Anyway, we'll be back soon with more movies to talk about. This has been digital noise. That has been John Golson. I am Chris Cox. And uh, get out there and enjoy some movies and television shows. See you later.